Take your Bible and open to uh, John chapter 6. That's where we are in our study this morning. John chapter 6, we're going to pick it up in verse 41. And I'll read down to uh, verse 50, through verse 50. Uh, John chapter 6, verse 41. The Jews, uh, therefore, were grumbling about him because he said, I am the bread that came down out of heaven. And they were saying, is not this Jesus, the son of Joseph, whose father and mother we know? How does he now say, I have come down out of heaven? Jesus answered and said to them, do not grumble among yourselves. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up on the last day. As it is written in the prophets, and they shall, be taught, they shall all be taught of God. Everyone who has heard and learned from the Father comes to me. Not that any man has seen the Father, except the one who is from God, he has seen the Father. Truly, truly, I say to you, he who believes has eternal life. I am the bread of life. Your fathers ate manna in the wilderness, and they died this is the bread which comes down out of heaven, so that one may eat of it and not die. Let's pray. Our Father and our God, again, we are thankful for the privilege of gathering uh, before you this morning corporately, and we're thankful uh, for your word. And we do pray, Lord, that your word would do its work in our heart, that it would teach us uh, the truths through the person of the Holy Spirit uh, as he has penned uh, these words for us uh, through the Apostle John. Uh, Do your work in our heart, encourage us, challenge us, change us, renew us uh, by our time in your truth. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. Well, this morning in our ongoing study of the the book of John, we're continuing to look at the issue of uh, spiritual defection. Uh, Those who hear God's word and then those who turn their back on him, those who walk away from him. And sadly, this is uh, nothing new. It's not a new phenomenon. You see it here in the text of Scripture that we're working our way through, and you see it quite often in the day in which we live. Uh, You're probably familiar as I am. There are a number, there have been a number of uh, high-profile, I guess, if you wanted to call them that, high-profile, supposedly evangelical leaders, uh, people who uh, follow Christ and are supposedly leading others to Christ uh, for a period of uh, time, and then they walk away, and that's becoming a even more and more of a phenomenon, it seems. It seems. So, so we see this defection uh, everywhere. Uh, perhaps even people we know on a personal level, uh, people who have made a profession of faith in Christ, and then they walk away from the gospel, they walk away from the church, they walk away from, from Christ himself. Uh, they, they don't have any uh, interest in his word. Uh, they're really traitors, uh, defectors, apostates. And maybe we've even invested time in these people in their lives on a personal level with them. And we thought the best about them, but at some point we find out that they're really not followers of Christ. And they just walk away from him. And sadly, this is, again, nothing new. The apostles knew this very well. Even Paul himself, who was a spiritual father to many Gentiles during his time on the earth, at the end of his life in Second Timothy chapter 1, Verse 15, he says this, You are aware of the fact that all who are in Asia turned away from me. Among them were uh, Phygelus and Hermogenes. And that's a pretty sad statement, right, for a guy who uh, poured his life into people. People who once loved Paul, once who were 
nourished by him spiritually now have defected from him. They're ashamed of him. Verse 8 suggests that perhaps the reason is they are uh, ashamed of him because of his imprisonment. And he names these two uh, men, of those being guilty of by association, that they don't want to be found in that position. Their first priority was self-preservation. Therefore, they want nothing more to do with the Apostle Paul. They want nothing more to do with Christ. So Paul names these two deserters about nothing we know anything except their cowardice. We assume that he names them because Timothy probably knew them, as well as many others perhaps in the church. Perhaps they were leaders at one time in the fellowship, but in the end, they're ashamed of Christ, they're ashamed of Paul, and they defect. In chapter 4 of 2 Timothy, Paul says to his young disciple in the context, he says, verse 1, he says, I solemnly charge you in the presence of God in Christ, who is to judge the living and the dead by his appearing and by his uh, uh, kingdom, preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season, reprove, rebuke, exhort with great patience and instruction. In the context of spiritual defection, the command is to preach the truth. The command to Timothy by Paul is don't defect, endure, stand strong, uphold under adversity. Expect that there's going to be a time where people are going to become intolerant to confrontive, demanding preaching of the word, but you preach anyway. Verse 3 of that chapter says, For a time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine, but wanting to have their ears tickled, they will accumulate for themselves teachers in accordance to their own desires, and will turn away their ears from the truth, and will turn aside to myths. But you be sober in all things. You endure hardship. You do the work of an evangelist, and you fulfill your ministry. Paul says in this context, we don't want to make it easy for the hypocrite. We don't want to make it comfortable We don't want to allow people to become false followers of Christ. We want to make sure that the word is preached and that their word is preached truthfully and that people are following the word of God, that people are following the commands of Christ. Again, to follow him without exception, to die daily, to pick up your cross and follow the Savior. We want people to intentionally count the cost. We want the the word of God to expose those who are false Christians, false disciples from those who are true from those who love the Lord Jesus Christ, those who love his word and will follow him no matter what. And then just a few verses later in verse 10 of that chapter, he says, For Demas, having loved this present world, has deserted me and gone to Thessalonica. So having counted the cost, Demas says, Christ isn't worth it. Christ is not worth what it's going to cost me to follow him. So he turns away also from Paul, and he turns away from Christ. Verse 16 of that chapter Paul says, at my first defense, no one supported me, but all deserted me. And if you've been in ministry for any length of time, you know that painful reality. We've all encountered spiritual defectors, traitors to Christ, traitors to the truth. A painful reality in ministry, but more so a painful reality, especially if it's one of our close friends, perhaps a family member. Even more tragic, even more painful, perhaps if it's our spouse or one of our own children who walk away from Christ. The Apostle John knew this in the uh, the pain of spiritual defectors. He says in 1 John 2, 19, they went out from us, but they were not really of us. For if they had been of us, they would have remained with us. But they went out in order that it might be shown that they are not of us. Again, defection on a spiritual level is nothing new. You see it in the Old Testament. You see it in the New Testament. You see it in our day. 
spiritual apostasy, apostasy, defection, rebellion. It's nothing new. There have always been false followers of Christ. Those who, again, claim to follow Christ for a season, and then they reject him. That's the message of John 6. That's the overall message of the chapter. And I've told you that the reason that people walk away from Christ is because of what Christ says. It's his words. And even more specifically, it is his specific words. Anytime you start to become precise, that's when people start to get this shake and they don't want to listen. If you have some kind of generic uh, statement of affirmation of faith, uh, people are ready to sign that. But when it starts becoming very specific, the words that have meaning start being enforced. People get very uncomfortable with that. And people are uncomfortable with Christ because of his words. Because he says specific things. He makes hard demands of people. That people must believe upon him and believe upon him alone. That he alone is the Holy One of God. That he is, in fact, God come in the flesh. That men must believe upon his atoning, substitutionary death and subsequent resurrection. That eternal life comes only through him. And not through anyone else and not through any of the false religious systems of the world, that men must forsake and flee from those systems and follow him only. And when Christ makes demands like that, people flee from him. And the truth is, biblically, the vast majority of people will reject the gospel of free grace. The vast majority of people will reject the gospel of God's free grace, of eternal life in Christ Jesus, and they will believe in a false system of works righteousness. That's what the whole world, apart from biblical Christianity, puts into practice. False systems of works, righteousness. People trying to make themselves right with God. And all those systems do is do nothing but condemn them further eternally. Right? The gospel comes, and the gospel is offensive to the natural man. The gospel, the Bible says, is a stumbling block. It's foolishness to the natural man. But still, men follow these false systems because they won't humble themselves into the truth. We know biblically out of Matthew chapter 7 that there are many who say they're following Christ, many who say they claim to know Christ, but in the end, Christ turns the table on them, as it were, and says, well, I don't know you. You claim to know me, but I don't know you. In spite of all of your religious activity, Christ says the way is narrow that leads to life, and few are those who find it. The false way that leads to destruction is broad, and there are many people who will take that road. Now, in our story, as we've been working our way through the chapter, we've seen the person of Jesus Christ interact with people. We've seen his compassion. We've seen his grace. We've seen his mercy. We've seen him spend an entire day healing many people in the morning. Then in the evening, there's a massive crowd. I told you somewhere perhaps between 20 to 25,000 people have gathered, and he feeds them from nothing. He just spontaneously creates in their presence. He displays his compassion. He displays his power he displays his deity and this massive crowd follows him they want another miracle Uh, namely he has provided them dinner so in the next morning they want him to provide breakfast and amazingly as he interacts with them they challenge him to prove that he is from heaven it is an undeniable fact and an undeniable reality they have seen the miraculous work of christ but they still challenge him moses made Moses provided for us for 40 years. Now you only provided us dinner last night. You know, I mean, it's an untenable, unbelievable demonstration of uh, 
or a request, and it's a demonstration of nothing more than rank unbelief. They've seen the truth. They've rejected the truth. They have a lack of heart, desire to follow Christ. I've told you the crowd really isn't interested in Christ. They're not interested in his person. They're not interested in the salvation that he offers. They just want their physical needs met by him. So again, Jesus rebukes the crowd. He rebukes their misunderstanding, corrects their misunderstanding of the Old Testament scripture and the manna. It wasn't given to them by Moses. It was given to the nation of Israel by God himself. All Moses did was tell them how to pick it up. And the Lord, what he does is he offers himself to the crowd as the true bread out of heaven. The bread of God, the bread from God, the bread that has the power to save, the bread that has the power to really satisfy the soul, the bread that comes down out of heaven that gives spiritual life to the world. And he refers to himself as that very bread, the bread of life. Verse 35, I am the bread of life. He who comes to me shall not hunger, and he who believes in me shall never thirst. But again, the sad reality is that they're not going to believe. Christ is offering himself as eternal life to every sinner who will come to him. And the the sad reality, again, is most men won't come. Most men won't come. The Bible says the reason that men won't come is they love darkness rather than light because they love their evil deeds. The light exposes them. They love their sin. Most men are self-satisfied. Most men don't see their their need of an alien righteousness or righteousness that is outside of themselves. And because they're self-satisfied and are happy with their own effort, they see no need of Christ. And in doing so, they condemn themselves. In rejecting Christ, all men do is condemn themselves and assure both their misery and time and eternity. Now, last time when we were together and are working our way through the chapter, we saw the great confidence that Christ had in this... uh, Um, arena or this avenue this atmosphere of unbelief that in spite of man's unbelief in spite of man's uh, willful rejection of him that God's saving purposes would still be carried out and we saw that Christ had great confidence in God's sovereign electing work that those whom God chose in eternity past he will graciously and irresistibly call them to himself in time verse 37 all the Father gives me shall come to me. The one who comes to me I will, not, I will certainly not cast out. For those who have come down from heaven, for I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. Verse 39, this is the will of him who sent me, that of all that he has given me I lose nothing, but raise it up on the last day. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who beholds the Son and believes in him may have eternal life, and I myself will raise him up on the last day. It is a tremendous portion of Scripture. It speaks again to the fact that salvation is full and free in Christ for whoever will come, but it also speaks to the issue of God's sovereignty over the realm of salvation. And it speaks at the same time to the fact that our salvation is tied up into the eternal plan and to the eternal love of the Godhead, that salvation is the working out in time of God's eternal choosing uh, for himself or for his son, a bride, who is going to come and love and worship him both in time and in eternity. If you were not with us last time, I would encourage you to listen to that sermon because what I just said will make more sense. You'll you'll be greatly encouraged, greatly enlightened by the truth that we looked at because what we did last time is we went way back before time began and we traced God's eternal plan and promise of redemption into time whereby God the Father irresistibly and graciously calls 
uh, a redeemed humanity to himself through Christ and in the process secures a bride for his son. A redeemed humanity that again will worship and praise the Lord Jesus Christ forever and ever and throughout the eons of time will be singing worthy is the lamb that was slain. He has guaranteed their salvation, their eternal security for those who will look upon Christ. It's a tremendous story. So again, I encourage you to go back and listen to that again if you weren't, uh, weren't here with us last time. But this morning we're here in verse 41. And, and again, we're going to continue to work through the chapter. And again, we're going to continue to dive down deep because there's a deep theological chapter, the issue of salvation and unbelief, kind of side by side here. We're going to see Christ. We're going to see that his lowly condition when he was here on the earth uh, was a stumbling block to the natural man. Men in their pride refused to believe that this was one who is indeed sent from God. We're going to see that any time again the gospel is preached, it humbles man. And because it humbles man, it's a stumbling block. It's a stumbling block to speak of the blood of Christ, to Christ being made sin for us, Christ being the only cornerstone of our hope, Christ's poverty, uh, poverty bringing uh, our riches. Uh, the natural man hates these truths because, again, the cross is offensive. The cross makes no sense uh, to the natural man. And then again, as we work our way through the text, we'll see that man's inability on a natural level uh, to repent and believe. That without the grace of God, there's not a single person that's ever come into faith in Christ. Without the grace of God, there's not a single person who is ever coming to faith in Christ. Because as those who are spiritually dead, we have no power in ourselves to make us spiritually alive. Right? We have no power to do that. But our inability doesn't remove our accountability. Both are truth biblically. The truth is if a man is lost, he's lost because he himself has rejected Christ. He himself has refused to believe upon the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. If a man is lost, a woman is lost, it is because they have refused the saving work of Christ and they would not come. On the other side of the same coin, the reality is that if a man is saved, he's only saved by the grace of God, only saved by the kindness of our God. And that salvation or eternal life for a believer is a present possession. That once men repent and place their faith in Christ, Christ is now in them, and Christ in them provides for them now in this world a new life. The, the moment that a person repents and places their faith in Christ, they are justified. They are accepted into God's family. There is now therefore no condemnation for that person. But that person forever has peace with the Father, peace with God. I mean, I tell you, it's just a tremendously rich portion of Scripture. Theologically deep. To encourage our heart. To help us again look up. To look to God. To look to Christ. To see the glory of Christ. And to rejoice in God's kindness to us through the Savior. Verse 41. The Jews, therefore, were grumbling about him because he said, I am the bread that come down out of heaven. Now, I've got to stop here for a moment because I think when you come to verse 31, I and a number of other uh, commentators, or at least a few, I think there's a break here. As I was reading this, I, I just think there's a break. There's an interval here in the uh, conversation because now in verse 41, the attention is on the Jews. And as John uses that phraseology, it's always the religious leaders of Israel, those who always stand in constant opposition to Christ. Now, previously, Christ had been addressing the crowd, the mass that were following him, right? From one side of the lake to this side of the lake. Okay? They'd been fed in the evening, they went breakfast in the morning. But by the time you get to verse 59, it says, These things he said in the synagogue as he taught in Capernaum. 
So it just seems apparent to me that there's some kind of a break here, a pause, an interval that is implied. You have a change of persons, and more than likely, you have a change of place. Up to this point, Jesus has been talking to the crowds in the open. Again, they followed him from one side of the sea to the other side of the sea. But in verse 59, again, he says he's speaking there in the synagogue at Capernaum. Now, it doesn't say that explicitly he's speaking to the Jews or to the religious leaders there in verse 51. All it says, or in verse 41, all it says is that they're grumbling about him. They're complaining. So we don't know whether or not they were part of the actual crowd that had heard him speak. And as he's made his way to the synagogue, they're following along. Uh, Maybe they were discussing this whole issue as they were going back to Capernaum. Or perhaps the Jewish religious leaders were informed by people who were actually there who'd come back from the side of the sea and worked their way back into the city, and they've gone to the religious leaders, and they're complaining about it. We're not exactly sure the, the, the scenario. But we do know this, because verse 41 says it. It says the Jews were grumbling about him. Now, the word grumbling is an onomatopoetic word. It just means it's a word that is associated with the sound it makes. So more than a, more than a word, it's a, it's a sound. It's like murmur or, or, or buzz. Or something, you know, how do you write that down? I don't know, B and a bunch of Z's or something like that, right? You know, it, it, it's, 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 a, it's a kind of an intense feeling. They're grumbling, they're muttering. They're outraged, they're angered. And they're expressing uh, their displeasure with Jesus. And the reason that they are upset is twofold. First, they're upset with his claims that he is the source of eternal life, verse 35. Remember there, Jesus said, I am the bread of life. And I told you that that word life there is zoe, which speaks of spiritual life. It's not bios. He's not talking about physical, biological life, but he's talking about spiritual life. I am the bread of spiritual life. Right? I am the bread of life. He who comes to me shall not hunger, and he who believes in me shall never thirst. So they're upset because he's making an exclusive claim that he and he alone is the source of eternal life. Number two, they're outraged by his declaration that he's come down out of heaven. Right? He's come down out of heaven. The Jews, verse 41, were therefore grumbling about him because he said, I am the bread that came down out of heaven. Again, coming down out of heaven speaks of preexistence, speaks of eternality. It speaks of the fact that he is deity, the reality of his deity. So the Jews were grumbling about him. Note they were not talking to him. They're just complaining about him. They're complaining about him behind his back, as it were. They're grumbling amongst themselves and to those who are in the crowd against the person of Jesus Christ. It's interesting that the word that's used here in the Greek is the same word that is used in the Septuagint, which is the uh, first translation, uh, Greek translation, Gentile translation of the Hebrew Old Testament. And it's uh, used in, in the Septuagint of Israel murmuring against God in the wilderness wanderings. Right? It's the same word used here. The religious leaders are murmuring, they're grumbling against Christ. And, and again, few things have changed. Right? The depravity of the human heart reveals itself frequently. It often murmurs against God. Right? That's why we are called as believers not to complain, not to murmur, not to grumble. Because when we do so, we are going against the reality of the sovereignty of God who has ordained all events. Right? We're called to, to worship, called, worship God. We're called to love God. We're called to not be anxious for anything, but to go to God with our prayers and petitions, not to grumble. Not to murmur. Therefore, the Jews were grumbling about him because he said, I am the bread that comes down out of heaven. So again, the Jews, the false religious leaders of Israel, those who stood in constant opposition to Christ, 
They have no concept of Christ. They have no concept of his glory. They're really ignorant concerning his person, the reality of his person. Now, the Jews had long made up their mind, right? The Jewish religious leaders had long made up their mind about Christ, about Jesus, that Jesus was not the Christ. Jesus was not the Messiah. And they were going to have nothing to do with him. In fact, they hated him. They had already determined they were going to put him to death. If you remember back up in John chapter 5, verse 18, it says, For this cause, therefore, the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him, because he was not only breaking the Sabbath, but also was calling God his Father, making himself equal with God. If you go to the end of chapter 6, and then one more verse, verse 1 of chapter 7, it says, After these things, Jesus was walking in Galilee, for he was unwilling to walk in Judea because the Jews, again, the religious leaders, were seeking to kill him. They had already made up their mind. There were some people, you might remember the context of the story of the feeding of the 5,000 or the 20,000. There were some people who wanted to come and take him to make Jesus king by force, right? That he would continue the welfare state and continue to feed them. There were probably a few people who were undecided. There are probably even a fewer yet group of people who sincerely believed that he was the Messiah, but the Jewish religious leaders had already rejected him in total. They wanted him dead. They refused to acknowledge who he is, who he was, in spite of the overwhelming evidence to that reality. Arthur Pink has a great comment here. He says, the religious leaders, he says they were far too self-satisfied and too self-righteous to see their need for the one who had come down out of heaven to them much less one who would come down to die upon a cross and to meet their need and thus become their Savior. That's a great statement. Too self-righteous, too self-satisfied. We don't need Jesus. People don't come to Christ because they don't see their need of him. The Jewish religious leaders were in that category. The Jewish religious leaders were self-satisfied. They were definitely not hungering and thirsting for the righteousness that Jesus Christ offers to the world. Right? Therefore, they have no hunger for the bread that comes down from heaven. And again, not much has changed. Most men, especially religious people, especially religious leaders in religious systems apart from biblical Christianity, they have no hunger for Christ. Self-satisfied. Such is the pride of the, the fallen heart of mankind. Satisfied in themselves, not interested in the Savior. Yet again, all men are held responsible for their unbelief as they reject and despise God's mercy through the person of Jesus Christ, again, not seeing their need of him. And again, when pressed, you know this, I know this by personal experience, when you press people on the claims of Christ, the religiously satisfied begin to murmur. They begin to grumble, if not walk away. So again, the Jewish religious leaders, they think they know all about him, they think they know all about Jesus. But in reality, again, they have no concept of who he is. They have no reality of the concept of his glory. They are ignorant, which is often the case, again, amongst people you talk or try to talk to about Christ. They think they know everything they need to know about Jesus. But in reality, they don't know the truth about him whatsoever. The Jews, therefore, were grumbling about him because he said, I am the bread that came down out of heaven, verse 42. And they were saying, I think with a a tone of contempt and scorn, They were saying, is not this Jesus, the son of Joseph, whose father and mother we know? How does he now say, I've come down out of heaven? There you see the contempt, right? Is not this Jesus, the son of Joseph? We know his mom and dad, right? Who is this guy? 
Again, the Jewish religious leaders who are supposed to know better are completely ignorant to the glory of Christ. They're completely ignorant to his supernatural origin. They think of him as nothing more than just a mere man. Is not this Jesus, the son of Joseph, whose father and mother we know? Again, they believe he was born of earthly parents and born of earthly parents alone. They they completely reject as absurd his claim that he's come down out of heaven. Again, they don't have their facts together as much as they think they do. Now, obviously, we get from one sense that Joseph and Mary are his earthly parents. Mary was, no doubt, his biological mother. Joseph is not his biological father, but Joseph assumes that role when Jesus was a child growing up, and Jesus submits himself to both Mary and Joseph as a mother and father. But the Jewish religious leaders, again, these guys who are in authority, these guys are supposed to be the leaders of Israel on a spiritual level. If these guys had paid more careful attention to their scripture, to the Old Testament scripture, that again, supposedly they knew, obeyed, and trust, they would have known that the promised Messiah was to be both human and divine. Both human and divine, that's what it says, both God and man, Deuteronomy 18, verse 15, Isaiah 9 and 6. They would have known that the the Savior, the Messiah, would have been one born of a virgin, uh, Isaiah 7. They would have known that he was born to be born in Bethlehem, Micah 5 and 2, and so on. So again, the religious leaders think they have their facts together. They think they know their facts very well. They think they know the Lord's origin, but they're absolutely wrong. And the events of our Lord's birth are perfectly, again, fulfilled, foretold and fulfilled in the Scripture. The facts are plain, but facts don't stop unbelief. Unbelief is not an issue of evidence. I've told you that before. Unbelief is bound up in the human heart. The Jewish religious leaders had already determined not to believe that Jesus is the Messiah. They had already made that decision. They had already determined not to believe that he was God's provision of bread from heaven. Again, we've already seen the evidence presented over and over again. If you just went back to chapter 5. Now you, you, you discount the, John's opening statement in the Gospel, chapter 1. You discount the miracles that were evident to everybody in chapter 2. Even Nicodemus had seen. Chapter 5, there's many witnesses to the truth of our Lord's claim, because that's what he was talking about in that chapter, the claim that he came down out of heaven. You remember there was the witness of John the Baptist, right? And then there was the witness of his works uh, that testified to Christ's origin. John the Baptist, who the religious leaders put some confidence in. They send somebody out to find what's going on. He tells them what's going on, right? They reject his witness. The miracles, again, the Pharisees had seen, evident to everybody. They reject that uh, as in that divine origin. Then in chapter 5, we saw the witness of the Father. Again, he, the Father confirming the fact that Jesus is from heaven. But again, the religious leader's unbelief is willful rejection of the truth. If you want, you can look back up there at the end of chapter 5, verse 37. It says this, And the Father who sent me has borne witness of me. You've neither heard his voice at any time, nor seen his form. Now just stop and think about that for a moment. <laughs> you got a bunch of religious people who think very highly about themselves and, and their supposed understanding of the Scripture, and it says, You've never even heard God's voice. You guys are so completely out of it. You have no understanding whatsoever. You've neither heard his voice or seen his form. You don't have his word abiding in you, for you do not believe in him whom he sent. You search the scripture because you think in them you have eternal life. And these, the scripture, they bear witness of me, verse 40, and you are unwilling to come to me that you may have, un- that you may have life. 
you are unwilling to come to me that you may have life. I mean, again, unbelief is never about evidence. Unbelief is always about the condition of a hard heart. And you won't come to me. You like to play the religious game. You like to pretend like you know so much. You've got all these theological degrees that you guys keep uh, conferring on each other. Uh, you, you know, wear all these fancy clothes and tassels. You don't know the foundation of truth because you don't have the word. You're unwilling to come. That's the reality on a biblical level. Those who continue to reject the truth reject the revelation of the person of Jesus Christ. Those who reject Christ are unwilling to come that they might have life. And the reality is on a biblical level, those who continue in that pattern, those who continue to reject the truth, are going to find themselves at a point, some point where, uh, or at some time, where God will judicially harden their hearts and they will never believe. God, as an act of judgment, will harden their heart and they will never believe the truth. It's one of the reasons why you look in the scripture in the book of Matthew, for example. Christ started to speak to people in parables. He spoke in parables to obscure the truth for those who refused to believe the truth. Matthew 13, 10, the disciples came to him and said, why do you speak in parables? He answered and said to them, to you it has been granted to know the mysteries of the kingdom of heaven, but to them it has not been granted. Whoever has, to him more shall be given, and he shall have an abundance, but whoever does not have, even what has been taken, has been uh, uh, taken away, but what, whoever does not have even what he has shall be taken away from him. Therefore I speak to them in parables, because while seeing they do not see, while hearing they do not hear, nor do they understand. And in their case, the prophecy of Isaiah is being fulfilled, which says you will keep on hardening, or you'll keep on hearing but not understanding. You will keep on seeing but will not perceive. For the heart of this people has become dull. With their ears they scarcely hear. They have closed their eyes, lest they should see with their eyes and hear with their ears and understand with their heart and return that I should heal them. But blessed are your eyes because they see in your ears because they hear. Those who reject truth, God will obscure truth. God will judicially harden their hearts so they cannot understand. You have closed your eyes. John chapter 12, verse 37. Those who had rejected uh, Christ, even in the evidence or even by witnessing, uh, in the presence of witnessing his miracles. John writes this. John twelve thirty-seven. But though he had performed so many signs before them, yet they were not, they were, not believing in him. They were not believing in him that the word of Isaiah the prophet would be fulfilled, which spoke, Lord, who has believed our report, to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For this cause they could not believe. For Isaiah said again, He has blinded their eyes and hardened their hearts, lest they see with their eyes and perceive with their heart and be converted and heal them. I'm telling you what, don't stamp, don't trample down grace, right? Don't trample underfoot the blood of the covenant by which men are saved, right? Don't have disregard for the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. You need to be warned. Uh, you need to be warned. You continue to hear the gospel. You can hear, continue to hear the offer of salvation through the person of the Lord Jesus Christ, the glory of the person of the Lord Jesus Christ, and you continue to reject that truth, there will come a day, I guarantee you, that God will harden your heart in judgment. And you will not be able to respond to the truth. Paul says that very same thing. 
He confirms that in the end times, there are going to be people who will not receive the love of the truth as to be saved. 2 Thessalonians 2 and 10. And they will find, verse 11, 2 Thessalonians 2, 11, they will find that God will send upon them a deluding influence so they will not believe, or they will believe what is false, right? They won't believe the truth. They won't receive the truth. And God will send a deluding influence so that they'll believe what is false. In part, not total, but in part what we're seeing with the depraved minds in the world in which we're living now. Men who've rejected the truth, God gives them over. Men make stupid decisions. They reject God. They turn away from God. Men double down and make even stupider decisions, and God gave them over. Men exalt perversion that God calls evil, that promises to bring his judgment. Men exalt it, have a holiday, put a flag out in front of the White House, uh, light it up in all kinds of color, and God says, I'm going to bring judgment. And men say, don't listen to God, listen to me. Let's all join in the party. At some point, God will bring such a hardening of men's heart and such a deluding spirit that men will not be able to believe. But this is the day of grace. This is the day of mercy. This is an opportunity of salvation here in the room or on the, on the live screen. Don't harden your heart. Repent. Come to Christ. End your rebellion before it's too late. End your rebellion before it's too late for you. Now, in the context of the story here, the Lord doesn't even answer the confusion of the religious leaders. He certainly doesn't answer them the way a person would expect. Rather, he commands them, verse 43, Jesus answered and said to them, don't grumble. Do not grumble among yourselves. Stop it. Just stop the mumbling. Stop the complaining. Stop the rebellion. The rebellion that's reflected in your hard hearts. Your hearts that have seen the truth. Regarding the reality of who the person of Jesus Christ is, yet they reject him. He just says, stop it. Stop the rebellion. Any more discussion on this issue would be futile. It would be a waste of time, and it would just add to the eternal condemnation of those who have already determined that they are going to reject Jesus as the Christ. In fact, instead of answering them and their folly, he declares to them the reality of, listen, they can't believe. You guys think you're so smart? Here's the reality, Jewish religious leaders, you can't believe, verse 44. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him and I will raise him up on the last day. It's a straightforward declaration by Christ to the depravity of mankind. Their depravity, their helplessness, their inability to respond to him apart from God's sovereign grace. And it is their own sin that makes them hard of heart. It is their own sin that makes them reject and fail to believe upon Christ. Mankind in his corruption can never come to Christ on his own initiative. If God does not irresistibly call and draw the sinner to Christ, then no one's ever coming to him. And I've told you this before, the picture that is popular in the popular religious culture, if you will, that wants to reject that truth, that wants to reject the straightforward, often repeated doctrine of election in the Bible, that tries to give spiritual life to those who have no spiritual life, and as the reality is, all unregenerate, all unbelievers are dead in trespasses and sins, slaves to unrighteousness, alienated from God, hostile, hostile towards him, spiritually blind, captive, trapped in Satan's kingdom, powerless to change their spiritual nature, 
unable to please God, incapable of understanding spiritual truth, those who want to pump some life into those dead corpses, those who want to reject the biblical doctrine of dec- of, uh, of uh, uh, election, suggest that what God does is he looks down the corridors of time, as it were, to see who's going to believe upon him, and then in time he chooses those uh, he is going to save. Well, if that were true, then when God looks down the corridors of time, he would see absolutely no one who's going to believe upon him in time, apart from his grace. Romans 3 and 10, there's none righteous, not even one. There's none who understands. There is no one who seeks for God. Do you know what no one means in the Greek? It's not complicated. It says what it says. The problem is people don't like what it says. So they make all this kind of convoluted thing here and there and all this kind of stuff. No one seeks for God. God looking down the corridors of time, choosing in time who's going to believe him. He's looking down a corridor of blankness, of darkness. No one's going to believe. There's no one who seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they become useless. There's none who does good, not even one. The natural man, again, has absolutely no ability whatsoever to accept the gospel by their own free will because men don't have free will. Yeah, but I just came by free will X and Y Z church this morning. Yeah, I know. You put whatever you want on the outside of your building. Again, there's a lot of people who put church on the outside of their building that aren't churches. No one has free will. The Bible says all men are slaves. They're slaves of sin. Slaves of unrighteousness. And again, spiritually dead individuals cannot awaken themselves from the dead any more than a physically dead person can bring back life to himself. Man does not have that kind of ability. Again, Christ says, no one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. So the Jews are murmuring and they're complaining about Christ and against Christ. And again, that just proved their inability and proved their sin that they cannot come. They do not want to come. They won't come because they're satisfied. Self-satisfied. Satisfied with their self-righteousness. They're dead spiritually. They'll never come to him on their own. It's exactly the same thing that Christ told Nicodemus back in chapter 3. Who's Nicodemus? He was the teacher of Israel, right? He was part of the religious establishment, the teacher in Israel. He was a member of the Sanhedrin. And Jesus said to Nicodemus, you must be born again. Nicodemus, you must come and God must give you spiritual life. You must have life from above so that you can see what you can't see. Truly, truly, Christ says, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. John 3 and 3. Verse 44, Jesus says, no one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. No man whatsoever can come to Christ by faith and really believe upon the person of Christ unless God the Father in his kindness and compassion draws him to come and then changes his will in order that he would believe. Because the nature of mankind after the fall, the nature of mankind as a fallen human being is so corrupt, so depraved, that even when Christ is made known to them, even when Christ is preached to them, even when Christ, the eternal God who made them, is standing in their very presence, fallen men won't come to him. Fallen men won't come to him. Fallen men won't believe upon him. Fallen men can't see who is standing in their very presence. That's how much sin has corrupted their ability to understand. They won't come. They won't believe until God in his grace inclines the will, 
opens their eyes, gives them des desire, and that disposition to come. So again, in order for a man to come to Christ, he has to be drawn by the Father. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. J.C. Ryle says this. He says, this is no doubt a very humbling truth and one in which every age has called forth the hatred of, in opposition of man. The favorite notion of man is that he can do whatever he likes, repent or not repent, believe or not believe, come to Christ or not come, entirely as his uh, own discretion. In fact, in fact, men like uh, to think that his salvation is his, in his own power. Such notions, says Ryle, are flatly contradictory to the text before us. The words of our Lord here are clear and unmistakable and cannot be explained away. End quote. That's a tremendous statement. It says what it says. Again, people don't like what it says. So people say, well, you know what? I've had enough of this. Had a bunch of that, that, that nonsense. I've had enough of this guy who takes, talks for an hour. I'm not coming back to this place ever again. Man, I can't believe I stumbled in here this morning. If I wasn't so uh, self-conscious, I'd run and leave uh, right now. It's okay. I've had an entire row uh, in the back leave at one time. You wouldn't be the first one. Christ says, no one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. And again, he says that to the Jews, the spiritual leaders, so-called, of the nation of Israel. And listen to me. He speaks that word not to repel them, but to humble them. This is what we don't get, right? Hyper-Calvinists wouldn't even talk like this. They don't, they don't have a clue. I'm not a hyper-Calvinist. What they don't get is the word that he has just spoken. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him to those who are hostile against him. He's not speaking that to repel them, but to humble them. He wasn't closing the door in their face, so to speak. He wasn't saying, look, there's no possible hope for you, fellas. What he was doing was he was pointing in his kindness. He was pointing out the only direction their hope could be found. Come to me. Go to the Father. Come to me. Exactly the same thing that happened to Saul of Tarsus. Remember him, right? Very highly educated man, a very religious man, very self-righteous man, a persecutor of Christ, a persecutor of the church. Until one day, he was drawn by the Father. He finds himself to be an object of God's mercy, a vessel of God's mercy, and he finds himself to be exactly one of those who's been given by the uh, by the Father to the Son as a gift of His love, one given before the foundation of the world. Uh, of the world, God in His mercy opens His eyes; the scales fall off. He opens His eyes to the truth, and the Apostle Paul, who was formerly Saul of Tarsus, hater of God and Christ, now sees Christ in all of His glory, and now he sees Christ as his only hope. He was being drawn by the Father out of the compassion and the mercy of God. Christ isn't shutting the door. Christ is offering mercy to people who want mercy. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. So again, the words of Christ are a manifestation of the depth of human depravity. It exposes the stubbornness of the human will. And again, it explains the murmuring of the grumbling Jews. He tells them that they're never going to come to him unless they're object of God's divine mercy and grace. 
because God is sovereign over the realm of salvation. Yet he bids them come. How can those who, whose best acts of righteousness are seen before God as filthy rags before a holy God, as it says in the book of Isaiah, how can those who are blind to the fact that from the crown of their head to the sole of their feet, there's no soundness in them whatsoever, as it says in Isaiah 6, those whose hearts are so hard they speak only evil continually, and who's this, in whom the spirit of truth is not welcome to receive, how can they ever come to a knowledge of the truth on their own and be saved? The answer is they can't. No one's coming unless the Lord draws them, unless the Father who sent me draws him. Arthur Pink says this, Water will not flow uphill, nor will the natural man act contrary to his corrupt nature. An evil tree cannot bring forth good fruit, and equally impossible it is for a heart that loves darkness also to love the light. He goes on and says, The depravity of man is from the human side, the only thing which will explain the general rejection of the gospel, the only satisfactory answer to the question, Why is not Christ cordially received by all whom he is presented? Why do not? Why do the majority of uh, despise? Why do the majority of men despise and reject him? It is because man is a fallen creature, a depraved being who loves sin and hates holiness. So too, he says, the only satisfactory answer that can be given to the question: Why is the gospel cordially received by any? Why is it not obstinately rejected by all? Is in the case of those who believe God has by his supernatural influence counteracted against human depravity in other words the father has drawn them to the son that's exactly what happens in salvation jesus answered and said to them do not grumble amongst yourself no one comes to me unless the father who sent me draws him so again no one is coming to salvation apart from believing the gospel and sinners aren't going to come of their own free will God graciously calls, God graciously offers continually the, the gospel for those who will reach out and take it. But men won't come on their own. One commentator points, it out, points out this in this uh, section of scripture. He says, it's an interesting strategy <clears throat> that few people would recommend that those who desire to witness uh, to others about the person of Jesus Christ as the Messiah, the Savior of the world, that, he, that you would stop and directly tell the lost they cannot and will not be saved unless the Father draws them, unless they're chosen of God. That is a great comment, right? That's an interesting strategy that most of us won't use, but it's exactly the strategy that Jesus used. It's exactly the strategy that he used here. It's exactly the strategy uh, the uh, strategy that he used back in John 3 with Nicodemus. Man's unbelief, man's opposition to the truth, the rejection. He, both times, preaches the doctrine of election to these unsaved Jewish people, the uh, again, the doctrine of election, one that is hated, a doctrine that causes division, probably more, probably causes more division among the saints than it does the ain'ts, right? But uh, 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 believers, people who claim to be a believers, they, they really have a difficult time with this. A lot of people do. Modern preachers, modern theologians would tell us, well, you better not do this. Never teach on God's sovereignty and salvation just in a general uh, statement because it's too controversial, it's too divisive. And most certainly there'd be many who would say never talk about the doctrine of election with unbelievers because it's going to drive them away from Christ. I would encourage you to get your theological uh, positions. I would encourage you to get your theological practice, not from people you read, but I would read this book and get it from Jesus, right? That's probably a safe place to get it. Stop wasting all your money on these people who are selling you books who in a few months down the road or a few years down the road defect from the faith anyway because they don't know what they're talking about because they don't know the person who they're talking about because they're religious but they don't know Christ. 
right? Just get your theology and a practice of theology on a practical level from the Bible. Watch Christ do what he does. He confronts people who are religious, people who are unbelievers, and he confronts them with the truth is you won't come and you can't come. The doctrine of election. Oh, you're going to drive people away from Christ, right? Well, Christ says, well, again, I didn't read their books. I didn't speak the truth. He confronts these unbelievers, and again, he's going to do so. Uh, if you uh, stay with me, you're in chapter 10, you're going to see it there in chapter 10 also. Because as someone has said, and I don't remember who said it, he says, the thought that you may not be one of God's elect should drive you to panic to believe in Jesus Christ. No one's getting a pass when you stand before God in judgment and say, well, I wasn't one of the elect. It doesn't work. Stand before God in the judgment. Having rejected Christ, he's going to say, you rejected Christ. I offered you mercy after mercy after mercy. I even had you listen to that guy who won't shut up talking. Talks for an hour. Breaks all the homiletical rules and doesn't listen to the modern theologians. The thought that you might not be one of God's elect should drive you to panic to believe in Christ. You want salvation? Full and free. Anytime you want. And by the way, I thought I needed to talk on this just a bit, take a little bit of a rabbit trail. The concept of prevenient grace. Have you ever heard of that before? Prevenient grace? Suggests wrongly to counteract the effect of the sin of sin in the fall that God has given this so-called prevenient grace to everyone, making everyone capable of accepting the offer of salvation. Therefore, according to this uh, wrong theological view, there's no need for any kind of special application of God's grace on an individual, on a particular individual level. But again, the whole concept's unbiblical. No one's saved apart from believing the gospel, and sinners will not, they won't come to Christ of their own free will. Go back up and look at verse 37. You see there in verse 37, God's drawing can't apply to all unregenerate men as the proponents of pervenient grace argue because verse 37 actually limits it to the redeemed whom God has given to, the, to Christ. All, verse 37, all that the Father gives to me shall come to me and the one who comes to me I will certainly not cast out. So God irresistibly and efficaciously draws to Christ only those whom he has chosen for salvation in eternity past before the foundation of the world, and then he draws them to Christ in time. No such thing as pervenient grace. You have to be a, an object of God, God's mercy and kindness. He concludes or continues on with the statement here of those whom God the Father is going to draw to the Son. He says, I will raise them up on the last day. Again, everybody who comes to Christ by faith is going to be kept by him. There's not a possibility that even one of the elected person will ever be lost. And at the same time, the doctrine of election is clearly proclaimed and clearly preached. The doctrine of election does not take away man's responsibility and accountableness for his own soul. Again, the Bible declares without exception that if a man is lost, it's his own fault. Mark 8 and 36. Christ says, For what is the profit of man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? For what shall a man give in exchange for his soul? Whoever is ashamed of me and my words 
in this adulterous, sinful generation, the Son of Man will also be ashamed of him when he comes in his glory and his Father with his holy angels. Again, um, inability doesn't take away responsibility. All inability does is prove culpability and prove the reality that you're under sin and rebellion against God. Responsibility, again, biblically is placed with the man because he rejects the truth. You go back and look at it later this afternoon and you see if it reads like I'm just going to read it to you, John 3 and 18. He who believes in him is not judged. He who does not believe in him has been judged already. There's nothing in there, it says, because he's not elect. It says, he who is, uh, he does not believe has been judged already because he, back on the man, he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. Lost, it's your fault. Saved, it's God's mercy. Again, you have these twin parallel lines of reality, twin parallel truths that always run parallel, they never intersect. Divine sovereignty, human responsibility. We can't reconcile them in our own mind, but it's what God's word says. You camp out on one and live in that one world, you are in error. You camp out on the other one and live in that world, you are in error. When you try to remove the tension of the scripture, you are in error. Live with attention. I say it to you often. I don't write it. I just read it. It says what it says. It's not my word. Who am I to edit the word in the mind of God? I live with attention. I go to sleep at night. I don't have a problem with it. It says what it says. Twin parallel line truths. Sovereignty, responsibility. Spurgeon said this once. He said that God predestines and yet that man is responsible are two facts that few can see clearly. They are believed to be inconsistent and contradictory, but they are not. The fault is our weak judgment. Two truths cannot be contradictory to each other. If then I find taught in one part of the Bible that everything is foreordained, that is true. If I find in another scripture that man is responsible for all his actions, that is true. And it is only my folly that leads me to imagine these two truths can never contradict one another. Right? That's a great statement because two truths can't be contradictory. It's our folly. It's our human weakness. Divine sovereignty, human responsibility, they side-by-side parallel truths. Difficult for us to understand, but I would suggest this, that perhaps we just need to humble ourselves. I know that's a concept that's not very popular in the day in which we live, but perhaps we ought to just humble ourselves and say, under the word of God, says, this is what it says. I don't understand it in full but I'm willing to accept it because this is what God's word said. It's okay that I don't understand it. It's God's truth. God elects before the foundation of the world, and then the Bible says whoever believes in Christ may have eternal life. Again, that's the very reason for why John is writing this book. John 20, 31. These things have been written that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that be believing you may have eternal life. That's the reason why the Holy Spirit said, John, take up the pen and write, because I want people to come to life. And they're going to come to life through the Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. I want them to believe that he is the Christ. I want them to believe he's the Son. And I want them to believe so that they might have life eternal in his name. Romans 10 and 9, if you confess with your mouth, Jesus is Lord, and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you'll be saved. Simple truth. God elects before the foundation of the world, and therefore we should be able to look any person in the eye and say, if you call upon the name of the Lord, God has promised to save you, because that's the truth. That's the truth. You might remember a few months back, I, 
I, I gave you a quote from R.C. R. Sproul uh, that after he was teaching the doctrine of sovereign grace and sovereign election in response to a woman who was uh, particularly uh, troubled with him and what he said. She said, in essence, it was the most awful thing she'd ever heard. As she felt that God was intentionally turning men and women away who would be saved in receiving only the elect. And R.C. said this. He says, Dear lady, you misunderstand the situation. You're visualizing that God is standing at the door of heaven and men are thronging to get in and God's saying to various ones, Yes, you may come in, but not you, and you, but not you, etc. He says the situation is hardly this. Rather, God stands at the door of heaven with his arms stretched out, inviting all to come. Yet all men without exception are running in the opposite direction towards hell as hard as they can go. So God in election graciously reaches out and stops this one and that one and this one over there and that one over there and effectually draws them to himself by changing their hearts and making them willing to come. R.C. says election keeps no one out of heaven who would otherwise have been there, but it keeps the whole multitude of sinners out of hell who otherwise would have been there. If it were not for election, heaven would be an empty place and hell would be bursting at the seams. That kind of response, grounded as I believe is that uh, in scriptural truth, does put a different complexion on things, does it not? He says, if you perish in hell, blame yourself, and it is entirely your fault, but if you should make it into heaven, credit God for that, because it's entirely his work. For to him alone belongs all praise and glory, because salvation is a gift of God's grace from start to finish. Amen? That's a tremendous statement. If you didn't need to hear it a second time, I did. It's a tremendous statement. That's a picture of truth. That's a reality. Mankind's only hope of salvation is outside of himself. Mankind, all mankind need grace. They need the mercy of God to call us from life or from death to life. The unregenerate sinner, again, is so to pray without the grace and the mercy of God, changing his heart, his mind, his will, he'll never come to the Savior. And yet God in his mercy does that, that very same thing, right? He draws the sinner to Christ, to the person of the Holy Spirit who comes and awakens that dead sinner to his need of Christ. Holy Spirit uh, does work, as it says in the book of Jeremiah, takes out that hard heart, that hard heart of stone, and gives a heart of flesh. And the Holy Spirit comes, and he overcomes the pride of the natural man, that he's ready to come to Christ. And he's ready to come empty-handed, hand-wide wide open as a beggar. And the Holy Spirit comes and creates within that person a hunger for the bread of life. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I'll raise him up on the last day. Tremendous offer. Tremendous mercy, tremendous Savior, tremendous grace. Verse 45, which is a paraphrase out of Isaiah 54, 13. It is written in the prophets, and they shall, be, they shall all be taught of God. Everyone who has heard and learned from the Father comes to me. So when the Lord references the book of Isaiah here, he's basically saying to everybody who's listening, that everything I've been telling you is consistent with the Old Testament Scripture. In Isaiah 54, in the context, God is speaking to the Jewish people about the future hope they'll have in the Messiah when he comes in his coming kingdom and the wonderful promises that he has made in the relation to him in his coming kingdom. And he says this, again, in the context of the people who are listening to the grumblers, instead of just, if they would have Instead of grumbling, if they would have just listened and taken up the book, their own scripture, they listened to what the word of God said, the word of God the Father, they would have understood exactly what Jesus was teaching. They would have understood exactly who he was. 
Now, some commentators have suggested that verse 45 really is a restatement of the truth of verse 44, but just said a little bit differently. I can live with that. Those who come to saving faith do so because they are supernaturally instructed by the Father. They are drawn and taught. Right? Drawing and being taught is just merely different aspects of God's sovereign call to salvation. Again, it's through the truth of the Word of God that God draws people to embrace Christ or the Lord Jesus as the Christ, right? Because faith comes by hearing and hearing by the Word of God, right? Instruction, faith, drawing, teaching. Everyone who has heard and learned from the Father comes to me. So again, the Jewish, or Jesus is really rebuking the Jewish religious leaders. If they would have just truly understood the Old Testament Scripture, they would have eagerly embraced Jesus as the Christ. It is written in the prophets, again, Isaiah 53, it is written in the prophets that all will be taught of God, right? Again, Jesus says, everyone who's heard and, heard and learned from the Father comes. Arthur Pink points this out. He says, the Lord's usage of the word all here in, in the, this verse, verse 45, helps us to define all in other passages like John 12, 32. John 12, 32, Jesus says, if I be lifted up, I, if I be lifted up from the earth, will draw all unto me. So, Pink says, all does not mean all humanity, but all of God's elect. And again, if you went back to the context of uh, Isaiah 54, verse 13, it says, all of your, that, that text back there says, all your sons will be taught of the Lord, all your children, in the authorized version. So again, the verse is applying to all of God's children. Not all men, but all who are children of God. Right? All who are children of God can understand the truth because the Father, their Father, teaches them the truth. They hear the Father's voice and they believe. John 8, right? You can't hear because your Father is the Father of the devil. You won't believe, right? Those who are children of the Father, they listen. And all who are taught of the Father will come to Christ. Everyone who listens and learns is going to come to him. Why? Because grace always conquers. Grace always conquers. Grace does what it sets out to do. So in that sense, grace is really irresistible. Verse 46, not that any man has seen the Father except the one who is from God. He has seen the Father. Again, verse 46 goes right along with verse 45. Verse 45 is not talking about some people learn by some kind of mystical experience. Somehow they come to a mystical knowledge of the truth of God. And that's what he's saying. He's saying, look, no man comes to a knowledge of the truth apart from the revelation that has been given to them. And the revelation that's been given to, him to the world is the person of Jesus Christ. Because he's the only one who's seen the Father. He's the only one who's been with him. He's the only one from heaven, the only one from God. Jesus Christ is the only mediator of the, of the knowledge of salvation. He was the one who was internally, eternally in heaven, face to face with the Father. It says back in the beginning of the book. He alone is the only one who is qualified to speak about this issue the, uh, on a first-hand level. The expect, ex, expectation of the Father, the truth of salvation. Not that any man has seen the Father except the one who is from God. He has seen the Father. Verse 47, truly, truly, I say to you, he who believes has eternal life. And again, remember I told you that when Jesus says truly, truly, he's trying to use those words to point our attention to something important that he's about to say. Something very important. He's describing those who have eternal life. Those who have eternal life are those who believe. Those who entrust themselves to God's revelation through his son, the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. Again, truly, truly, I say to you, he who believes has eternal life is an invitation and a warning. It's another invitation to come to Christ. And it's another warning against unbelief. But those who do believe have eternal life. Believes is in the present tense. It's a present tense participle, which indicates that we don't just believe Jesus at one point somewhere back in the, the bygone days, but it's an ongoing reality. We continue. The moment you believe is the moment you come to eternal life. 
And Jesus again says of his sheep, those who hear his voice, right? They'll follow him. John 10, 20, I give eternal life to them. They will never perish. No one will snatch them out of my hand. Right? So the call to Christ, to come to Christ is everywhere. The invitation is everywhere. The invitation has been extended. You often hear people say, well, I, I can't come to Christ because of my great, my great intellect. Listen, you don't have to put your brain in park to believe upon the person of Jesus Christ. All you have to do is set aside your pride. Let's get to the issue. All you have to do is set aside your pride. You've got to humble yourself. You've got to stop your arrogant grumbling, your skeptical attitude, your self-righteousness, your self-confidence, and make a reasonable, rational decision to come to Christ because you're being offered eternal life. Have you noticed that a lot of people in this world die? Death is a reality that you're not going to escape, my friends. You need a Savior who has conquered death, and there's only one person who has done that. And he continues through the pages of Scripture to offer you life. To the prophet, God says, why will you die? Why will you continue to be foolish? Why will you continue to be in rebellion? Humble yourself. Call out for mercy. Cry to God the Father to have mercy upon your soul, to do for you what you cannot do for yourself, to awaken your dead spirit and to give you life. Because God has promised to do that sovereign work of regeneration in your heart. God promised that because the Bible says that God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. God has promised, Romans 10 and 9, that if you confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord, believe in your heart, that God raised you from the dead, you shall be saved. With the heart man believes, resulting in righteousness. With the mouth he confesses, resulting in salvation. For the scripture says, whoever believes in him will not be disappointed. There's no distinction between Jew and Greek. For the same Lord is Lord of all, abounding in riches for all who call upon him. For whoever will call upon the name of the Lord will be saved. Jesus says, truly, truly, I say to you, he who believes in me has eternal life. Verse 48, I am the bread of life. Humble yourself. Set aside your pride and come to the bread of life. Receive the gifts that you can't do for yourself. The regenerating work of the Holy Spirit. The Lord concludes that sermon here by just restating truth. He's the bread from heaven. He's the true bread. Verse 49, your fathers ate man in the wilderness, they died. The bread which comes down into heaven is... This is the bread which comes down out of heaven, that which one may eat of it and never die. And again, verse 48, I'm the bread of life. Want some manna? Okay, here he is. Take all you want. Provided miraculously by, by, miraculously by God, it uh, sustained the physical life for the Israelites when they're in their wilderness wanderings, but manna is not going to give you satisfaction to the soul. Manna is not going to give you eternal life. Fathers ate the man and they died. But the bread of life, Jesus, whom God offers to the world, Jesus, who offers himself to the world, Jesus, the one from heaven, gives eternal life because he alone is the one who rescues sinners from eternal death. Now, there's a lot more that we need to look at in these last verses, but obviously we're out of time, so we're going to stop right there. Our Father and our God, we're thankful for your word. And as I prayed at the beginning, may your word do its work on our hearts. Challenge us, restore us, renew us.
bring those who are at this moment in rebellion out of the rebellion, humble them before your mighty truth to see that Jesus is the Christ, that he is the bread, the only bread that offers eternal life to the world. May you open hearts and minds to your glory and to the glory of Christ, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.